Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Monedelix. Today, I have a special guest with me in preparation for adopting Bitcoin. His name is Herson Martinez. Herson, I hope I said your name right. You did. You did. Yes. Okay. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you for being with me. So, yeah, we meet up or actually I learned about you the first time two months ago in a Bitcoin meetup in El Zonte, which everybody that is in El Salvador should definitely attend. Mm -hmm. And I thought your story was very, very interesting. So that's why I'm here with you today. First, I would like to know uh, more about you so you can introduce uh, yourself to our audience. Yeah, certainly. And and thank you very much for the opportunity to be here. I'm really grateful for folks like you who are putting forth an effort to increase education about El Salvador. So thanks very much for having me. So as you said, my name is Gerson Martinez. Just to maybe kind of begin with some basics, I'm uh, 38 years old. I am a son of, of Salvadoran immigrants to the United States. So that means I was also born here. I was born in the United States uh, about an hour outside of Washington, D.C. in the mid 80s uh, from 1984, which was around the time that my, my parents left El Salvador. This was a time of civil war in El Salvador. And we can, you know, we can get into that, uh, talk a little bit about that, that history. But in terms of my personal story or my person, my family's uh, kind of history, my parents are both from working class, very under-resourced uh, sort of families in El Salvador who separately, you know, they both decided to leave the country at a time where it was very dangerous, right? Uh, it was a very dangerous place uh, to be, especially if you were a 19-year-old male like my dad in, in, in the year that he left. During this time, you know, if you were a young man, you basically had to pick a side between government forces or the guerrilla forces that were fighting this, this civil war. So my dad chose uh, to leave the country out of out of necessity um, and and you know out of a sense of um, wanting you know safety in the United States, they had me here. But then, interestingly, and I'll, I'll share this with you because I, I think it's relevant, you know, to the overall mm -hmm. story. At this time, you know, my parents were newly moved to the America. They spoke very little English. They were barely here, like on on work permits and this kind of thing. And I think it's important for folks to understand just how dire the circumstances were in El Salvador at the time. That that would cause people like my parents to go to make unimaginable sacrifices in order to just give their kids a better life. So they, they moved here and they had me here. By the way, I'm my parents' uh, uh, only child. And when I was four months old, they were forced to make a choice to actually send me back to El Salvador with my mother's family, with my grandmother, my aunts and uncles, uh, to be raised there for about three years, three and a half years. And the reason was because they needed to protect their employment, you know, here in the U.S., because that was their way to get you know, their green card, their citizenship. And for anyone who's a parent, and you can imagine you're sending your only kid at four months old, you're still breastfeeding and this kind of thing, right? All because the circumstance in your own home country is is that dire that you need to stay, you know, in this other place to try to seek a better life. You know, I, th I think that's a pretty significant sacrifice to have to make. And I think it, it speaks to a lot of the misconception that I've experienced when I was young. When I came back from El Salvador, I was, you know, four years old and I lived the rest of my life here. But the average American, I would say, the average American that I went to school with kind of looked at us like, you know, what are you doing here? Why don't you speak English? You know, why why don't you speak good English? You know, this kind of thing. And there's just a utter lack of knowledge around the things that drive people to leave their countries. They don't want to leave their countries. That's where they're from. But they're forced to, you know, by certain, you know, things. And, and then if we get into... Um, you want, we can get into the history of that civil war, right? And the U.S. stake 
in that game. Mm, interesting. Right? Um, okay. Yeah, we'll love so to, to, to learn more about yeah, that. Yeah, to take you back a couple of generations, about five generations ago in my family, on my mom's side of the family, is a family of coffee cultivators in uh, Huayua, in the, in the region that's now like very boutique-y, kind of chic mm-hmm. kind of place mm-hmm. to go and, and drink really nice coffee, right? But a hundred years ago, it was a place that was being commercialized, you know, for its coffee. And families like mine and my, you know, my great, great grandparents at a time in their history, they were owners of the land that they lived on and that they cultivated coffee from. But in the early 1900s, multinational interests like United Fruit Company and the like came and in conjunction with the government of that time, time effectively started buying up all of the land in El Salvador, taking ownership property ownership away from families like mine uh, or my, my ancestors, but then turning around and saying, okay, the land is now ours, but you still have to work here. You, you, we still need you to work here. And so we went from being, you know, property owners to being um, effectively employees, workers at the behest of the new owners. And what that resulted in, if you stretch that out over a couple of generations is lack of ability to build wealth through the fruits mm-hmm. of your own land. And then you fast forward all the way, you know, this is in the early 1900s, fast forward to the mid 1900s, 1957, when my dad was born. It's no wonder then that my dad and people like him were born into abject poverty because they, for 50 years, had no longer owned their land. They had worked land that now belong to other people, their wages were controlled by multinational influences. To me, it's no wonder that in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, and then civil war in the 80s, you have an entire generation of very under-resourced Salvadorans who say, I can't be here. I have to go seek a better life in this country up north. I share this because I think this is this was never in the textbooks in America that I studied, you know? And I had to take, you know, I, I had to take it upon myself as an adult to try to learn some of this. And, and this is part of why I'm so interested in constantly being engaged in El Salvador and, and with people who know this history. Because this way, as Salvadorans, we can be clear on the sequence of events and understand why this moment in time is so important. You know, today's the 15th of September and you were talking about verdadera independencia, like mm-hmm. true independence, right? This... This is why it's so relevant to me, because my whole family's history is is tethered to this idea of having your property rights taken from you and then being kind of subjected to a system that you have no control over. These were the things that happened five generations ago that resulted in my parents being born into poverty and seeking a better life elsewhere. And then, you know, I came along, right? I I lived a pretty American life, I would say. I, I lived a, a pretty standard American life. And now to kind of bring you back to my child, early childhood and, and teenage years, I do have to say, I grew up being very much kind of uh, ridiculed, made fun of, you know, pushed to the side kind of thing because of my association with El Salvador. This came from my average next door neighbor American, but also from within the Latino community, whether they were, you know, Mexican college classmates or whomever, there's always been, I think for 40 years, and and it pains me to say this, but uh, I think there's always been a negative taint to being Salvadoran. I don't mean to say that folks aren't proud to be Salvadoran or haven't been, but for someone like me, my personal experience was difficult. And as a child, as a young adult, even it had the effect of me wanting to distance myself from my heritage, from my cultural heritage. I remember thinking, oh, I wish I was Colombian or 
I wish I was something else, you know, to be proud of. And again, this pains me to say, but it's my reality. It's, it's, it's how I grew up here in America, right? Having been treated, you know, the way that we were treated. It's been 40 years of this constant, consistently negative narrative around El Salvador, shaped by the streams of the news and information that we all came to depend on. That was my formation, right? Uh, in America, son of Salvadorans who actually, unfortunately, felt ashamed and distant and wanted to distance himself from that culture, not really understanding the actual history and the actual value of the land and the people who who are, who have been there you know from there for generations. So that's a little I guess about my my upbringing and and our kind of family history. Wow, that's very interesting. I had no idea about this, but I have to say that what you're saying kind of resonated with me because my wife interviewed someone one week ago and this guy said this is the first time in history that El Salvador has a good reputation or people talk well about mm -hmm. El Salvador, the first time mm -hmm. in history. So now what you're saying is kind of go full circle. It makes sense for me now. And yeah. before we get into the civil war, because I would like to, to understand a little bit more about that, I want to ask you, isn't it very interesting that El Salvador, after experiencing this problem with property rights because mm -hmm. of United Fruit Company, now mm -hmm. is adopting first, uh, probably the ultimate form of property for uh, mankind, yes. which is yes. a Bitcoin. Isn't that interesting? It's unbelievable. I think the understanding that a lot of folks might have when you say the word United Fruit Company, I think we know what we're talking about in terms of like a, a certain imperialistic approach to smaller countries. Mm -hmm. This is not something that only affects El Salvador, of course. You know, we know that yep. this is all over the world. And it actually is continuing to happen to many degrees yep. in different parts of the world. I think what's so exciting though, is that El Salvador being on the complete receiving end of these dynamics, you know, these kind of imperialistic dynamics is the first country to take this incredibly courageous step. So it's extremely encouraging, right? It's, it's extremely inspiring to me because it could have been Nicaragua or it could have been in Honduras or it could have been any other country in the world who might feel overwhelmed and financially dependent on a large superpower like the, the, the States. And yet it's the, it's El Salvador, the, you know, the country that my family came from that's taken this step forward, which is what I think catalyzed me, who I was already a part of the Bitcoin ecosystem. But when I heard this in 2021, it felt almost like a calling to be a part of this support system for El Salvador to really succeed in its pursuits. And it's also very funny, as many people say, is that the name of the country, El Salvador, the savior. Yeah. <laughs> and mean, then, and, and not only, so it's the name of the country is El Salvador. Think about the departamento, the state where Bitcoin Beach is. It's called La Libertad, La Libertad. Freedom. <laughs> and then right next to it is the Departamento de la Paz, the peace, right? Even like a naming and branding perspective, it, like all crazy. the, all the, it's, it's, it's there, you know, uh, yeah. almost Simulation like- Simulation confirmed. You ever see yeah. the memes, uh, like, wow, how is this possible? Like, yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> Super, yeah, super interesting. It's... Let's talk about uh, the civil war. What happened? Because it was not too long ago. I'll caveat this by saying I'm not a, a full scholar on the topic, but I yeah. will share my family's experience and the effects that it had on us. So the civil war in El Salvador broke out in the late 70s, early 80s, as a result of decades of increasing polarization between the folks who were the working class peasants not owners of anything, you know, pleb, not owners of anything, the labor class that was generally in like the more rural parts of the country and poorer parts of the country, 
And the polarization between those folks and the folks who had everything, right, who controlled everything and who controlled politics in the country, who were at the top of the political kind of heap. There came a moment, and I think as with any cycle, political cycle and, and um, civil, you know, uh, uh, society cycle, there came a moment of just too much frustration that started to boil over between the folks who said, we need to take this country back from these few handful of people who control everything and, and are keeping us poor. And there, there began to be a bit of an uprising sort of energy. As I mentioned earlier, I was sent back to it, Salvador, actually in the middle of this civil war. And my the, the house that I lived in with my grandmother was in a neighborhood called Soyapango in San Salvador. And my grandmother, my aunts and uncles remember very much this was a hot spot of clashes between the national armed forces and these guerrilla fighters. Now, one nuance about this, which is worth mentioning, is that at the time, the folks fighting for their own freedom, fighting against the perceived tyranny of the state, etc., were called communists. And admittedly, I think those folks took their inspiration from folks who had, quote, liberated their countries, right? Say someone like a, a Che Guevara or a, a Fidel Castro type of thing. Mm -hmm. This is the kind of, I think, energy or narrative that was being played out at the time. So it was very easy for America, by the way, from... It's airwaves and it's newspapers to say it's the good guys against the bad guys, right? Mm -hmm. And so with that cover or with that protection of like idealistic, like we're the good guys and they're the bad guys, the United States then started structurally supporting the government through training its military with the, the assistance of American special forces and, and this kind of thing. So that's not an uncommon story in America, getting kind of involved in sovereign nation dealings, internal dealings. <laughs> so the United States got involved and um, the war raged on for more than 10 years, north of 11 years, uh, all throughout the uh, the 80s, pretty much. Eventually, there came an end to this war. And by the way, I don't mean to minimize those 10 years at all. Th these were the years in which people like my parents, even to this day, they're like, that's, unfortunately, that's the El Salvador that I remember. Dead bodies in the middle of San Salvador. Constant violence, constant danger, obviously poverty and, and demand destruction and all of these things. That's the El Salvador that my parents, uh, as young adults back then, remember. So it's very hard, I think, for them to undo that memory, mm -hmm. right? Because it was yep. so traumatic. As an example, my wife, whose father is also Salvadoran, um, her grandfather was you know, he got a knock on his door. He And this is a, a normal family man with five children. He got a knock on his door. He was told to come outside, come with two armed guerrilla fighters. He was walked about a kilometer away from his front door and um, shot on the street uh, on the way to his uh, hometown. His children all heard the bullet. They, everybody knew what was about to happen. And this happened every single day, you know, dozens of times a day to tons of families, right? So the trauma of the Civil War, I think, is significant and continues to live in the hearts of, of, of folks who are continue to be alive today, you know, who were children at that time. The Civil War raged on slowly and nothing was being resolved for many years. Finally, towards the end of the conflict, it came to a, an end when the government of El Salvador basically invited uh, the leadership of the guerrilla forces, they invited them to the table and basically said, okay, let's end this violent conflict 
And what we'll do is give you an official party within the political system. It's called FMLN. FMLN. We're going to form a new political party. And that was that. That was the end of the violent conflict between these two sides. Now, I would love, you know, for that to have also been the rebuilding period of of the country, right? And, and, you know, this is, it's already been, you know, three decades since the end of the Civil War. You would hope that the country would have rebuilt from there. But I think what you would find if, you know, as you kind of study the history of El Salvador is that the end of the Civil War ushered in a generation of a lot of political corruption and further polarization between now two parties with two leaderships, you know, who had access to capital and much more access than your average Salvadoran. I think that's the next chapter in El Salvador's history after the close of the violent conflict, the civil war, was three decades of a lot of uh, corruption and theft from folks who would rotate into power, right? Whether you were from the left-leaning party or whether you were from the right-leaning party, at the end of the day, they're always seem to be, and there's been three former Salvadoran presidents convicted of financial crimes that demonstrate to you the cancer that is, you know, a fiat, you know, monetary system and codependence or a, a dependence on a financial superpower in the region, right? Uh, yes. Yeah, so yeah, the absolute past... power corrupts absolutely. Right, right. Yeah. So, 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 so the subsequent decades after the civil war, unfortunately, weren't spent rebuilding the country, but rather, yes, the, the violence quelled to a degree, the official military violence, you know, quelled, but I think a lot of the turmoil and poverty and la and hopelessness persisted all the way through uh, the current decade. Interesting. Is that in that period that the gangs took control of El Salvador? Mm. Now I'm kind so of this, connecting the dots in my yeah. mind. So th that's a great question. And let's get into that because okay. the gangs, which is, I think, if you were to ask your standard American, what do you know about El Salvador? They say MS-13 and murdering, yeah. you know, murderous gang, gang members, right? So the gang problem in El Salvador actually started in Los Angeles, California. And so for your listeners, if they're not familiar with this, this is actually, again, frustrating, tragic, um, but also very, very misunderstood. In the, again, consider my parents, right? And their generation that left the Salvador in the late 70s, early 80s. Many, many Salvadorans went to Los Angeles. And when they found themselves in Los Angeles, there was a lot of racially charged conflicts with the African-American community, with other, you know, subgroups. And what ended up happening is that these young poor immigrants started to defend each other, started to like band together to protect each other. So the gangs, the Mara Salvatruca specifically, the big one, was initiated in America, in Los Angeles. This is not a Salvadoran-born dynamic, right? This was this was a, an issue born out of problems in Los Angeles with the immigrant community. Now, as the problem grew, and if you consider Los Angeles, Los Angeles continues to have a, a, a really large gang culture of all types, right? As the gangs became bigger and bigger and more powerful and more powerful and more well-financed because of drug trade and such, mm -hmm. it began to be a real problem for the American government. So what did the American government do? Start deporting any gang member in LA that they caught and of course who you know was, was found to be undocumented would send them right back. So there was years, uh, and I believe under the Clinton administration in particular, years of airplanes full of gang members being deported back to El Salvador. And so the gang problem, as it became known in El Salvador, was actually something born in the US out of problems in a specific city in Los Angeles. Then 
the U.S. basically exported, you know, back or deported, you know, those those folks back to their country. But now they came back as gang members with a certain allegiance and a certain way of life that was violent and depended on theft and drug trafficking and this kind of thing. So the point I'm trying to make here is that I think most folks in the Western world assume that there's just this cancer that, you know, and people are just bad and everybody wants to join a gang. Well, in fact, the problem originated in the States and it was exported back to El Salvador. And then of course, over the course of like a decade, that influx of young people being deported back to El Salvador organized themselves in El Salvador, right? And the proliferation of gangs then took hold in El Salvador. And that is an economic problem, right? When a young person has no other economic uh, opportunities, they go to the next thing that they can think to do to put food on the table, which is, you know, oftentimes criminality. But yeah, that's a little bit about the connection between the effects of the civil war, which pushed people out of the country, Mm. which resulted then in the deportation of people who had joined gangs back to El Salvador, and then the proliferation of that gang culture in the country. Wow. So it, all, it almost uh, sounds to me like the United States not only helped destabilize a little bit El Salvador at some point, yep. but also when people from El Salvador were in the United States and mm-hmm. start doing illegal things and turn into mm-hmm. gangs, which mm-hmm. they probably learned in the United States, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and the government... Mm-hmm. Instead of arresting these people, is send them back to El Salvador. Yeah, yeah, and right, right, and I and I think this is you know this uh, this can get into so many topics about around immigration policy in a country that depends on immigrant labor, right? Like, there's no question that communities like LA and agricultural communities all over the country depend on the labor that they can acquire from immigrants and immigrants communities. And yet we don't necessarily support or create pathways for those folks to become documented and and not have these barriers. And again, coming from an immigrant family, I can tell you how difficult this process was. Literally, my parents had to send me back to outside of others so that they could get their papers here. This is how hard it is. Many folks, you know, might just take an easier route and say, you know what? I'm not going to do all that. I'm just going to stay undocumented. And that breeds the finger pointing. I'm like, oh, you're an illegal or you're a, you know, whatever. So you're right. Yes. Sorry to go back to your point. The, 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 the U.S. has had a pervasive presence in El Salvador locally there in terms of its, its influence over geopolitics and the economic output of the country. And then also on its own soil by just sending everyone back, uh, which then created a bigger problem in El Salvador. Wow, very, very interesting. I wasn't familiar with the details that you're explaining and kind of clarify a lot of things. And this brings me to El Salvador today, because now I understand in my mind, and correct me if I'm wrong, but my perception here is that the people that are not happy with the current administration is actually the, the aristocracy or the elite of El Salvador. Yeah. And now I'm connecting all uh, the dots between getting out of the civil war, these two parties that mm. instead of helping the people, they were just keep grifting, just <laughs> like two sides of uh, the same coin, mm-hmm. never helping mm-hmm. the people. And then Bukele, mm-hmm. with the help of social media and internet and mm-hmm. uh, the decentralization of information of media, mm-hmm. managed to create a third party. Is that that what happened? That's right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, ex- yeah. So um yeah, no you I think you're 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 right. Actually it, it turns out that it's very it, it's it's not an uncommon thing, right, for a country to have a two-party system that mm-hmm. becomes more and more polarized over time and who almost regardless of which party is in power 
the same thing keeps happening. The folks at the top, the folks closest to the, the power centers and the money spigots continue to benefit from the status quo, whereas the gigantic majority, the overwhelming majority of the people in the country do not benefit from the increased polarization between the two parties. So yes, this was, as I said about others, reality, a two-party system, a deeply entrenched establishment, you know, supported mm -hmm. by media outlets on both sides. I mean, this literally sounds like America, right? It sounds very similar, <laughs> yep. but you, you had this deeply entrenched establishment who kind of fights with one another and trades power back and forth. One administration is FMLN, the next administration is ARENA, and so on and so forth. But all the people in between uh, and all the people not close to those power centers continually get poorer and poorer and poorer. And that's why over the course of the early 2000s and 2010s, immigration from El Salvador to America continued. That's why 2 million Salvadorans live in the U.S., because the economic opportunities of the country have not born fruit. There continued to be none for so much time. And so now you fast forward to the mid 2010s when um, Nayib Bukele becomes, first of all, a mayor in San Salvador. You know, he kind of rises to, uh, I think, a much more prominent and visible uh, stage. It first belongs to both parties at different times in his career, but at some point decides, you know what, this country needs a new party, a nuevas ideas, new ideas party, right? Which I think is remarkable to... to um, not I attach an ideology to a political party, but rather a mindset. You know, it's like, we're going to look at new ideas. We're, we're, we're going to develop and execute on something new. And I think this is just my opinion. I have, mm -hmm. I have, based on our friends, based on, you know, the, the, the interactions that I've had with, with folks, my sense is that the new generation of Salvadoran who is roughly my age, right? Like uh, the millennial, you know, the, the older millennial or the the, mm -hmm. the Gen the Gen Z you know person kind of looks at El Salvador as a place where they can rise up within this structure. Whereas before, if you weren't already part of the elite class on either side of the political mm -hmm. aisle, you were not going to break into that class of you're not going to break out of your station in life. So I think with the New Ideas Party and all of the innovation that they're bringing, and as you mentioned, kind of the decentralization of information, the flattening of access to information, mm -hmm. it's planting the seeds of a totally different society in El Salvador, but it takes radical change. You couldn't have done it by tweaking a little bit of the Arena Party or tweaking a little bit of the FMLN. You really needed a reset, a hard reset politically. And that's what Nuevas Ideas, I think, has been. Very, very interesting. Yeah. And the thing that it's the most confusing to me about people idea or perspective about Bukele mm -hmm. is that, and I'm talking not about the people that are positive about that. Mm -hmm. That's clear why. Mm -hmm. I don't understand the critique how they are not happy with, for instance, having him arresting all the gang members. That's mm -hmm. something that yeah. confuses me because uh, people talk about human rights, violation of human rights, but mm -hmm. first you can take whatever angle. You can take the angle of, are these people human? Do you know what these gang yeah. members do? Mm -hmm. Or you can take mm -hmm. the other angle. Uh, yes, but he's also arresting innocent people. And my yeah. rebuttal to that is that why don't you think in the United States uh, they arrest innocent people every day? Mm -hmm. Don't you think yeah, it happens yeah. in Canada, Europe, everywhere in the world? Don't you think innocent people were arrested before Bukele, even by mistake? Right. So yeah. in my opinion, when you take such a large action, because as you said, we, we couldn't tweak El Salvador little by little. We needed to mm -hmm. just uh, uh, wipe Reset. it clean and start over. Yep. yep. So it looks yeah. to me like 
that's what Bukele is doing. And the mm-hmm. scale of his action is so vast that, of course, mistakes are going to be made. And, of course, yep. we're going to try to address them. Nobody is here defending the, the arrest of innocent people. Who would ever do that? You know, they're of not course. interested in that. What, what would whoever person gain from that? Yeah, okay. I no, I, I that's a, that's a great point. I think it's it's very much worth talking about. Most of the time, people come at this discussion mm-hmm. already with a vantage point. They're already convinced about how they feel about it, and there's no uh, reconciling. You're not going to get an Alex Gladstein to change his mind, for example. And I love Alex to death. He does great work. And similarly, folks who are extremely enthusiastic and devoted to the new political party and administration are also oftentimes unwilling to admit or recognize the blind spots, you know, in in the policy as well. But my perspective on this is the following. I don't think my opinion or your opinion matter. I think the people of El Salvador's opinion via their votes mm-hmm. are what matter. This is a democratic republic, right? Like this is this is a this is a place that gets to vote for their leader and either keep them in power or not. And so my perspective and as I interact with family, friends, and and new acquaintances and, and, and folks that we're interacting with in El Salvador. My ear is to the ground in El Salvador. And what I gather is that the average Salvadoran today feels safer in El Salvador than they did 12 months ago, 16 months ago. And the average Salvadoran, there's 7 million of them, the average Salvadoran feels safer today. And I can tell you just again from experience from our community, these folks, after 20 years of being routinely extorted by gang members. Extortion meaning I own a cab company and every single Monday I have to pay you know, rent to the gang members so they don't burn my shop down. 20 years of that habit is being broken community by community. So while my opinion doesn't matter, what I see is in net terms, a country getting safer because they're uprooting the weeds and doing so aggressively, right? It's a, a whole strategy that begins with control territorial, which means, you know, territorial uh, control. That doesn't sit well with a lot of folks in the, you know, human rights community because they're like, are we trying every single one? Are they getting a fair and speedy trial, et cetera, et cetera? I am not a legal scholar and I, and I, nor a judicial, you know, Salvadoran judicial system scholar, but I think in net terms and with every person that I'm, that I interact with, I, I have yet to find a person who's like, no, you know what? I wish it was like a, a year ago in terms of security and safety, personal safety mm-hmm. of the average Salvadoran and in terms of financial extortion or lack thereof from the small and medium business owner class. So of course, someone could also find five people that might state the opposite. But um, again, I just kind of begin from yeah. a place of saying, it doesn't really matter what I think, but what I'm hearing and seeing, and I think the evidence will be how these elections go, right? If the country's not happy, they'll remove him from power. This is another misconception about, is he an authoritarian? Is he a dictator? Mm-hmm. Is he a democratically elected leader? Just like here, you know, we need to let the Salvadoran people speak and give them the platform and give them the word, you know, rather than all of these kind of Western, yep. you know, brainiacs, <laughs> you know, ju- judging the situation. Yeah. No, that that's brilliantly stated. And also my mind, when you tell me these things goes to many directions, for instance, a question that I have for these people, which mm-hmm. I notice often, they don't live in El Salvador. The people not happy about Bukele, they don't live here. Right, like of they're course. always from mm-hmm. Canada, the United States, or Australia. So it's mm-hmm. kind of interesting because then if you're like me here, boots on the ground talking to people, yeah. everybody's happy. Nobody wants to go back. And right. then, for instance, to someone like Alex Glasson, I would ask him, okay, two questions. Should we just release all 60,000 members in the street? 
Is mm. that what you mm. want to do? Number two, mm. do you think people want to go back how it was two, three, four, five years ago? No. So yeah. whatever you think about the, the, the person in charge right now, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter. Because as you mm-hmm. said, first is the people that actually live in El Salvador, their mm-hmm. voice matter. Yeah. And we'll see yeah. what they think about Bukele in the next election. Right. And- right. They'll kind of raise their voices in the next election and rather than folks from the outside who don't who, who don't live there. Instead of looking at the name or the character of who's in power, let's look mm-hmm. at the results of his policies. Exactly. Not even the policies, because most of the policies that have a good intention actually backfire to people. <laughs> but yeah, uh, yeah. it seems like the country safer. Yep. People can have or start businesses without uh, having to pay taxes to El Salvador and then to also the gang members. <laughs> right. Right. Yep. And so nobody's complaining here about Bukele. And yeah. one Salvadorian uh, friend of mine told me last week that people that are complaining here about Bukele also are judges and lawyers because they're losing a lot of clients. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think um, you made that point earlier, and I, I just want to reiterate or, or acknowledge that I think that is the case. We could call it the establishment, and that establishment spans both political parties, right? It's not the right-leaning or the left-leaning establishment. It's all of it. All of it is threatened by the incumbency of a of a new party, right? Or the, the creation of a new party and a new way of thinking and a new demographic that is gravitating towards that party. That kind of sucks the wind out of the establishment's power. I think also, by the way, it's it's important to note that Bukele created, you know, the party. He won the election as president, and then his party won a supermajority in the legislative body, which is unbelievable for a brand new party to have taken such a commanding control let's say over the legislative body speaks to the dissatisfaction of the ex- existing establishment which is i think a point that we miss right mm-hmm. we ev- or or in ter- or the critics miss mm-hmm. everyone you know the critics are so angry about the control and the bu- and, uh, he's he, he, they control the it's called a supermajority i mean yeah. happens in america all the time yeah. you know um uh and that those things are won democratically right by vote that power wasn't usurped it wasn't stolen it wasn't taken by force it was votes and so yeah. i think what makes people uncomfortable is that now there's a supermajority that can push through its vision very very quickly by the law right following the constitutional law but that makes the establishment i think very uh uncomfortable regardless of which uh, side you're on so whether you know you're a lawyer or a, you know if, if your way of life is, is dissolving in front of your eyes you don't care what bukele is saying you're against it you know because yeah. it's, it's it's kind of like you know bringing down what you've known yeah that life. makes me think of the quote it's very hard to make a man understand something if it's not understanding it uh, gonna damage or help his uh, salary <laughs> something something along the line you know of course they don't want to understand (laughs) it's not convenient yeah one other note i wanted to make just in terms of my observations of the nuevas ideas party and again i draw a parallels to america because i I live here Mm -hmm. right the nuevas ideas party if you look across the spectrum of leaders right uh in in this party the diputados you know or the municipal leaders or the president it's a brand new generation of leaders. It is digitally native, millennial, forward-thinking, 
highly educated folks who have risen to power in this country. When I think about how that contrasts with America, where our average age of like the top five most powerful people is like 75 or whatever, um, that's the type of society that I want to live in because I'm 38, right? I'm, this is biased because I'm 38 and I have young children, but I want folks of my generation who who have 40 years to plan for, you know, and who care about what's going to happen in 40 years, mm-hmm. ushering, you know, policy, creating policy and executing on it, not necessarily an entrenched leadership that will not leave, will not relent power unless it's by vote, unless they're voted out. That's what happened in a Santa Barbara and hasn't happened here. That makes uh, perfect sense, you know. Also, if you start seeing uh, be- uh, countries as businesses, you always see old businesses disrupted. Uh, yep. No yep. matter how powerful or big they are, by newer, agile, and nimble companies, and that's because people that are managing this bigger, more established company, they're not the founders mm-hmm. anymore. So they're just there to get their paycheck, to get their compensation. Yep. So they don't really yeah. care about what happened in the company because maybe their contract is two, three, five years. Once they're yeah. out. They have their money in the bank account. Who cares about what happened to the company? So exactly. that's very yep. interesting. And it happens also in politics. Like yeah. this 80 plus years old American politician, do they care what's going to happen in 10, 20, 40 years to the United States? Yeah. No, they're thinking about yeah. to retire, to make the most exactly. of it. And you always yeah. see like American politicians, they get into politics as normal middle-class people and they get out as a multimillionaire. Yeah, Magically, right, right. At, and and I think also that creates a society, unfortunately, of leaders who are s- far disconnected from the people yes. that they're leading, right? So I spent a lot of years in the nonprofit space, working in, in the nonprofit world. And one of the battles that I always had to fight was for the recognition, for the acknowledgement that many, many nonprofit organizations are commanded by, controlled by, and funded by folks who have absolutely no lived experience of the thing they're trying to help fix, right? Or air quotes, fix. And so in the nonprofit space, we saw a lot of this very good intention, right? There's always good intention, but we're going to do this for the community. We're going to do that for the community, but you're not actually asking the community or you're not actually listening to what the community wants. You're doing what you as the donor or as the leader or as the powerful person want, not what the people want, right? Now, a, a, a nonprofit organization is not a democracy, right? It's not a country, but that's literally what I think a well-run country should should be doing, right? It, it should be represented by people who reflect the populace. And now, while El Salvador is going through a transition, right? It's, it's just beginning, I would say, a, a, a political transition. That's something to watch for. I hope and I trust that El Salvador will become this actually representative government or have this representative government of the people and not of a of just simply a new establishment or a newly entrenched establishment. And this makes me think about a couple of points that coming back to the critic of El Salvador, you know, and if you see what is happening to El Salvador and you compare it to what happened to Singapore, for instance, is the Mm -hmm. kind of closest Mm -hmm. example. Singapore is not a democracy, but I'm pretty sure their people are much happier, wealthier, uh, healthier and Uh uh better off than they were before the changes happened because a lot of people, I think, uh, they don't uh, they underestimate the power of having uh, economic freedom as opposed to mm-hmm. democratic freedom. You mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. yeah, because yeah. you can live in a demo- democratic country, but mm-hmm. if you cannot prosper because the government right. is behind you with that one thousand regulations, mm-hmm. are you mm-hmm. really free? 
or you just have mm-hmm. the illusion of uh, democracy and freedom, which I think that's kind of people like Alex uh, Gladstein, they have a little bit of a narrow view mm-hmm. about policy or mm-hmm. politics overall. And I almost feel like no matter what someone does is never enough. So they're mm-hmm. always going to, if it doesn't match their vision 100% as yeah. spoiled in, American in people that might not understand, yeah. come from mm-hmm. a privileged background and situation, mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. that it's bad, it, it, it's fantastic, it's good that this sure. happened, not judging that, I'm just saying, we need to kind of have a different perspective for absolutely the and, of the world. And I think, look, what you're saying, I think is is very true, right? El Salvador has to deal with the opinions of every thinker out there, right? Yeah. Um, Why? Where, People are happy. Where, Why? <laughs> and, and whereas for the past 30 years, there hasn't been a peep, right? Nobody like, cared. Nobody cared about the human rights atrocities happening for yes. 30 years, but yes. suddenly when there's this gigantically and bombastic kind of step in this direction. Now, of course, there's interest and there's incentive, right? There's eyes and clicks and ears. And yep. so you want to talk about El Salvador, et cetera. But I wonder where was the outcry about human you know, human rights for the mm-hmm. past 30 years and the hyper-focus on it today? For me personally, this is why the notion of verdadera independencia really resonates mm-hmm. because it's like, in my view, whether I, I am American or whether I'm Russian or whether I'm Chinese, I should be allowing a sovereign nation to do it. Whatever system of government mm-hmm. they chose for themselves and whatever leaders they chose for themselves, that's their business. I know we live in an interconnected world, of course, mm-hmm. but generally speaking in the West, we take on this kind of like holier than thou perspective. Like we got it right. So let me tell you how you should be doing it right. And that's yep. bullshit. I think that starting for, I get it. There's good intention there, but the notion of sovereignty is like central to this topic, right? It's like this country, El Salvador, by the way, of all the t- different types of like freedoms that they could try to create for their their people, they're starting with this, like their monetary system, right? That they're opting into, mm-hmm. you know, one 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 that the country of El Salvador can't control, like. That should tell you everything as a Bitcoiner. That should tell you everything about the intentions, the genuine deep down intentions of this administration. They could have just as easily, much more easily said, you know what? Forget the US. We don't like the empire. We're going to go back to the Colón, the currency before the dollar. And it's going to be a CBDC. And we're going to be the greatest nation on earth. And we're going to have our own currency. But they didn't do that. They opted into the Bitcoin network which is, again, as a Bitcoiner, it tells me everything I need to know about their understanding of decentralization and sovereignty. Also ties to the fact that Bukele used decentralized media, mm-hmm. social media at that point, to get in power, to get his ideas out there. And now he's giving people decentralized money. And mm-hmm. after that happened, El Salvador started getting interest and sometimes like a negative interest from the White House, the IMF and all these other institutions. So let's talk about Bitcoin. Let's get into the topic because uh, it's also very interesting. And I learned recently that you are a miner. Can you introduce us to the concept of mining? Sure, sure. Yeah. And I'll, and I'll tell you just maybe a little bit of my own motivations or my reasons for becoming a Bitcoin miner. I have a small business. That's how I put food on the table now. I went from being a Bitcoin, a saver in Bitcoin, a person who understood that I wanted to save in this way, uh, you know, some, some years ago. I got to a moment where I said to myself, okay, 
how am I going to acquire more Bitcoin over time, right? For the rest of my life. And there's a bunch of ways to earn Bitcoin, let's say, but basically it can boil down to you can buy it, you know, or you can procure it through the mining process. And mining is like probably confusing word to use, but it's the production, right? Of the, the creation of new Bitcoin and the, the reward for having the you know machines that do the work. So anyway, I got into, I, I began uh, to mine Bitcoin um, as a way for me to, slowly incrementally grow my stack right as matt odell says stay humble and stack sats that's it like, that was the whole motivation once 2021 happened and i became aware of el salvador steps in this direction i decided i want to do everything that I can to connect the Bitcoin mining industry, which is largely, you know, let's say the, the, the industry that's focused here in the United States and Canada and North America. I want to try to, to do everything I can to connect the, the mining industry with the country of El Salvador, because these are two constituencies that don't understand each other at all. Let me back up a little bit. You said to kind of explain a little bit about what mining is, right? Mining is the process by which computers called uh, ASICs, you know, they're, they're single use computers. They don't do anything else. They can't, you know, they don't have a a web browser or anything, they do exactly one thing, which is guess a lot of numbers, right? Over and over again. Now, collectively around the world, there are millions of these machines spread out, decentralized all, all over the world. And this is the process that is uh, strengthening and securing the Bitcoin network. And as a reward for running these machines, which costs electricity, you know, the input cost is electricity. You, you have to plug them into a wall and, and that electricity costs money. As a reward for running these machines, you get a, a share of your mining pools uh, reward uh, each and every day. Um, so each of us, depending on how much uh, what we call hash rate, we contribute to the network, you get that equitable amount of uh, Bitcoin reward every pay period, whatever you choose it to be, daily, weekly, whatever. So um, for me, like I said, it became a way for me to not buy Bitcoin on an exchange, you know, a KYC exchange, but to grow my stack in a uh, non-KYC way, first of all, that's that important to me as a sovereign individual, from a sovereign kind of individual perspective, I wanted to acquire, you know, sats in, in this way. And at the same time, I am helping to secure the Bitcoin network to keep it secure. So I, I wanted to contribute and, and to participate in the ecosystem in, in that way. I'm not a coder. I, I'm not a a technical person. There's a, a whole bunch of other stuff that I don't know how to do, but I said, I can invest some of my savings, my Bitcoin savings in these machines, such that this is a way for me to, over the long term, you know, secure, uh, secure more Bitcoin. One of the greatest things about Bitcoin is that it aligns incentives mm -hmm. in the best way possible so mm -hmm. that your own personal need, for instance, of stacking more SATs and having mm -hmm. non-KYC SATs mm -hmm. at the same time put you together with the whole network and ecosystem supporting yep. the ecosystem, you know? Yep. Yep. While if we go back to politics earlier, we often see how the incentives of who is at the top, they don't align with the incentives of who they are supposed to represent. And that's mm -hmm. why we have corruption. So yeah. The thing that I always say about Bitcoin is that Bitcoin removes the human element mm -hmm. and that's why it is uncorruptible. There's no, there is mm -hmm. the code, yep. there is no emotions, there's no greed or fear behind yeah. it. And that's why, yeah. you know, the saying Bitcoin fixes this, that's <laughs> why it seems like Bitcoin can fix a lot of problems 
Yeah. And actually, if, if you would allow me, I, I would love to kind of share one way in which, one real way in which I believe Bitcoin mining can and will support what's going on in El Salvador, like overall, right? Uh, yeah, let's talk about that. I've spent uh, the past year, roughly, trying to do my best to connect the commercial and industrial scale, you know, Bitcoin mining industry with El Salvador. The rabbit hole that mining kind of takes you down is very, very deep because you you end up learning about power markets and, and energy production and geopolitics and all these different things, right? So what I have learned over the past you know year thanks to my colleagues in the industry who work in the in power markets is that El Salvador has a problem that Bitcoin mining can fix and that problem is and you live in El Salvador expensive and fickle energy grid. Salvadorans pay a lot of money per kilowatt hour, somewhere between 13 and 19 cents per kilowatt hour um in, in El Salvador. That is astronomical for a country where your average cab driver gets paid eight dollars a day in america we pay you know depending on where you live you might pay the same but wages are way higher etc cetera, etc cetera, right so expensive and weak you know fickle electric grids are a problem in el salvador and so el salvador needs more First of all, it needs more and cheaper electricity. Now, how do you achieve that in a in a country, right? One of the ideas that came that became very public and popular was this idea of volcano mining, right? Mining on volcano energy. And while in theory that is doable in a country that has 34 volcanoes and a ton of geothermally active land, it's a, it's a very expensive process, right? In order to drill deep down into the earth, figure out if there's enough geothermal activity down there to create electricity, that's an expensive process. Who's going to make that investment? Is it government? And how is a government going to fund that investment? Or is it private industry? And why would they do that? Why would a private player go to El Salvador and fund geothermal energy production if you don't own the volcano, right? The volcano belongs to the country. So there's a challenge, right? There's a challenge of how do we create more energy, more and cheaper energy in El Salvador? What we're working on is trying to uh, develop different forms of, of um, energy production, whether that's nuclear SMRs, nuclear um, small modular reactors that can be brought to different parts of El Salvador. A small modular reactor is like a relatively small power plant that can produce energy for 5,000 houses, say, as an example. You can take an, an energy production you know, method like this, a, a nuclear SMR, place it in a in rural El Salvador. You know, imagine Oriente, right? Way out there where there is no energy or very little energy infrastructure. You can go place that energy source, plop it right down in the middle of a of an arid land. And Bitcoin miners can be the first buyers of that electricity. Because think about who would fund the production of an SMR in the middle of nowhere if there's no use for it, if there's no schools and residences and commercial buildings and highways and transmission lines, who would use that? No other industry might be willing to use that energy with the exception of Bitcoin miners. Bitcoin miners are willing to be the first buyers of that electricity. And then what can happen is that as Bitcoin miners utilize the electricity, of course, they're they're paying for it. They're, they pay for the electricity. They utilize it. They turn it into Bitcoin. Then in partnership with the government, what is possible is that the government then says, okay, you know what? We have a brand new small power plant 
in this part of Oriente. We're going to bring a school there. We're going to bring a highway near there. We're going to bring infrastructure to this community. Now we're going to have people and businesses and human flourishing there. Then the Bitcoin miners can simply step down. We can turn off these machines instantly. And the power remains with the community. Right now, you have a new, a brand new little pocket. A little, if you're in an airplane, you would see a, a little electrified part of the country, and the Bitcoin miners simply step down when they're asked to step down, and then they can move to another part of the country and do it again. Place another SMR there and build energy infrastructure in another part of the country that doesn't have it. And if you repeat this process over and over again, what you can create is a much more electrified El Salvador at a lower cost than the current rate of 13 to 19 cents per kilowatt hour. Aspirationally, that's what the Bitcoin mining industry is trying to create and trying to push for in El Salvador. And I have to say, I'm very, very encouraged that the administration has opened its doors to the mining industry. Like they are all ears. They're like, how do we work together? How do we push this vision forward? But I think this provides a, an example, an actual example of how Bitcoin mining can actually have a really positive effect on a country in particular like El Salvador, who needs cheap and abundant energy instead of what they have right now, which is very expensive and unreliable energy. Wow, no, that's exciting. That's uh, perfectly explained. And uh, I never really thought about that, but it's true because you can mm -hmm. build uh, the CD, the school, the hospital, and then mm -hmm. you build the electricity. You need to first uh, yep. build the power source and then you can build the community around it. And this is actually, by the way, this is exactly how human civilization has flourished across history. Where do communities come together? At riverbeds, right? Mm -hmm. and, and at places where there are energy sources. So people... And commerce and industry and civilization is drawn toward power centers. Wherever there is potential energy that can be turned into kinetic energy or electrical energy, that's where societies go. And Bitcoin mining, specifically through, you know, things like, but you, you know, you can't move a waterfall, <laughs> you know, you can't move cer <laughs> certain, certain types of energy, right? You can only mine, for example, you can't... Uh, uh, extract oil from where I live because there's no oil here, right? That's geography dependent. But if you take something like a nuclear SMR, which is a contained, very safe, clean uh, source of energy, you can place that anywhere, anywhere at all. And then suddenly wherever you chose to put that energy will attract humans <laughs> and commerce and all the rest of it. So while I think a lot of times when we talk about Bitcoin mining, at least it's my sense that people are like, what are these capitalists up to? Why do they want, how are they going to enrich themselves now? And I have to tell you, the conversation, the dialogue with the North American mining industry is so not that. It's about pushing forward human flourishing and doing whatever we can to support uh, this type of progress in a place like El Salvador, which is already Bitcoin country, right? So we we want to be supportive of this sort of development in the country. Yeah, and that's great. And actually, that makes me think about uh, two things. <laughs> it's kind of funny. One is, what is the problem if the miner or the power company, what is the problem if they're making money? If while at the same time, they're letting people flourish around the community and empower people to to move there, to live their nice lives. So what's the problem yeah. with that? And number two, of course, every uh, Bitcoin person that comes here and as a following at some point will be called a neo-colonialist or <laughs> yeah, something yeah. like that. What, what do you say to these people? Do you have an opinion about that? I'm curious to see what's your way of saying that. <laughs> 
I do. I do. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Perfect. I do have an opinion. Yeah. Um, but on, on your first question about what's the problem, you know, what's, what's the issue with, you know, sharing mm -hmm. power, you know, sharing uh, electricity, let's call it between miners and, and people. I think, look, any, every Bitcoin miner will acknowledge and reinforce the notion that Bitcoin miners are incentivized to go and seek out energy sources that are underutilized or stranded or wasted first. That's where we go first. I, as I like to explain, I would never, neither me nor anyone in this industry would go to New York City or central London or Milan and plug in an ASIC in the middle of a city because that energy is already being utilized by the community. And because of the demand of city centers, it's expensive, right? So it's uneconomical and therefore illogical for Bitcoin miners to go and compete with your grandma and grandpa who need their lights on. But it's a very easy argument to make, right? If you want to trash Bitcoin mining, it's like, oh, they're taking our electricity. No, we're not. <laughs> like we trend toward cheap, abundant, stranded, and wasted energy sources. Incentives. And in, in yeah, and in some cases, like the one I've been discussing about El Salvador, we are part of the reason why new energy sources are developed because we can be the first to suck it all up, right? Like, why would you build a power plant, 500 megawatt power plant, if nobody is there to use it? You wouldn't, you know, nobody would. But Bitcoin miners can can help that energy infrastructure development process and be the first users of the energy while the infrastructure is being built up around it. Yeah, so it's also a risky investment. Uh, people don't understand it. Is. it. Like exactly. miners are taking risks, big risks to make this happen. Of so course. it's not like it's the capitalist comes over and makes money. It's not, it's not how it works, guys. We need to learn a little bit of economy here. Of, uh, it, it, it is, yeah, no, you're, you're, you're right. Yeah, I think, uh, like I said, nobody's going to invest in that notion that I was telling you about a small modular reactor in the middle of nowhere, right? But whoever is investing in it is risking their capital, right? So that's just normal market dynamics, right? The person or entities who invest the capital, you know, are the ones who get to then utilize the, the thing that, that you're investing in. And then that energy source becomes useful for the country or for the community and in other ways down the line. So yeah, I think there's a bit of a misconception around the utility of Bitcoin mining yeah. in city centers where people, you know, it's, we're really not competing for people's electricity, you know. It no, 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 doesn't in, uh, make sense. And yeah. there's also a lot of uh, propaganda against Bitcoin right now, you know, and yeah. the use yeah. of energy. So it's, yeah. let's just say Bitcoin is not seen very positively by the elite of the world. Totally. By, no, no. Of for, course. For of many course. reasons. Yeah. And, and I think, um, as, as I saw on Twitter earlier today, I think we should brace for even more attacks on Bitcoin's energy usage because it's easier to attack that attack vector with a, a populace who has no idea about yes. what Bitcoin is or how it's produced. So it's very easy to say, look at Ethereum. They're using 1% of the energy use of the this other thing. You should never touch this other thing because it's killing the environment or whatever. So that's a terribly easy argument to make to an uninformed and uneducated populace. So I think we'll see that continue to proliferate, but market forces are what they are and, and capital will, will flow to the jurisdictions where they do get this. And what yeah. do you think about the neo-colonialist labels for Bitcoiners that come here yeah. to try to help, to employ people, to build business, to bring capital here, to give to local business? What do you tell to these people? Yeah, no, I, you know, I think, um, first of all, let me say, I understand 
I recognize where that fear comes from. Personally, you know, uh, I'm a person who has, you know, studied a lot of this history of uh, colonialism. It's had a real impact on, you know, my family and the people that I come from, all this stuff. So like I said, I fully recognize where that fear comes from. But where I draw a distinction is, again, inviting people to learn about the foundational layers of this protocol, right? And in the immediate sense, in the short term, of course, like people with resources to be able to visit El Salvador and maybe invest in El Salvador, support the economy, are going to be the first ones, you know, to, to be there because they currently, at time zero, have the resources in present day to do that. Where I think the, the distinction lies, though, is that the basis of what's being formed in El Salvador, we hope, is formed on top of a Bitcoin foundation. And as we know, this is a network and an asset that is uncensorable. So no one, very, very different from like the kind of fiat, let's think about like the colonialization of America 250 years ago. This had a very strong cancel on effect where the folks who already had the resources were able to kind of double down and then employ free labor to further strengthen their their financial position. I think in El Salvador, I understand the perception, you know, that this might be this new, you know, form of, of neocolonialism. And I do think it's a challenge that needs to be thought through. I think every Bitcoiner who's there or plans to be there should recognize, acknowledge that it's the folks who are there whose voices need to be elevated, right? You have a platform. Every Bitcoiner who has a Twitter account has a platform. And I think people like John Dennehy at Mi Primer Bitcoin, people like Mike Peterson at Bitcoin Beach, these are folks, Western folks, right? American, Canadian, whatever they are who recognize that they're not going to do that. And their actions are speaking louder than their words, right? Like their actions are propelling forward the Salvadorans who are reinforcing their community. So I think that's a, an approach, you know, a mentality, hopefully that Bitcoiners can have. It's like, hey, I'm going to this jurisdiction because it's my Mecca. But at the same time, I want to respect and acknowledge the folks who were already here, whose lives stand to improve as we all work together. That's a different perspective to have than one that might say, you know what, I'm coming from Canada and I have all these great ideas and I'm, I just want to employ a bunch of Salvadorans because they're cheap labor. That would be, <laughs> yeah, you know, that would be a little bit yeah. problematic. I understand. And when I have this conversation, like, of course, uh, now that you explain the history and the United Fruit Company uh, situation that was here in the past, this fear are uh, legitimate. Another thing that I try to make understand people, let me know if you agree with that, is that, mm -hmm. as you said, a point zero, at time zero, people that already have capital and not only mm -hmm. capital, they also have the knowledge. Yep. They have business knowledge, entrepreneurial mm -hmm. knowledge. They will come mm -hmm. here since the whole country will be lifted up. Of course, these people with knowledge, skills, capital will definitely make more money out of it. But mm -hmm. in my opinion, at the same time, what will be happening here is that with the whole economy growing, there's going to be more jobs. So mm -hmm. Salvadorian will be able to compete not only for the few jobs that the Salvadorian elite offers, but now yeah. they have the American employer, the Canadian employer, the Australian employer, the French employer. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. Salvadorians that have uh, the skills and they're willing to, to learn or to work hard, they will be able to demand higher and higher wages. And at yep. the same point, they, they will become rich and they will, yep. they live here. So they will put back this money into the society, employing yep. other people. So, yep. and of course, we are not going to solve the problem of poverty in El Salvador in, in a week or even in two years, of course. Mm -hmm. But in my mind, 
And I've noticed that uh, Bukele is also thinking that way with education. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, the parents here are going to be poor and probably they won't become rich, but their kids now, there will yep. be have access not only to education that Bukele is uh, working mm -hmm. a lot on, also mm -hmm. they will have these new jobs and new employer. So when they are 18, 20, 25, they won't have to repeat the path of their parents because exactly. now they have options. So exactly. what happens now is that the parents will have, uh, they won't become rich. Maybe they won't even make it to middle class, but at the same time, they are going to have more employer. They're going to have food security. So yep. the kids uh, don't have to worry about eating. Don't have to worry hopefully about uh, if there's going to be a storm on their uh, yeah. tent where they sleep. Of course, it's going to mm -hmm. take some mm -hmm. time. Right. But I see the next generation of Salvadorian, Salvadorian and our kids, uh, yep. if things keep going this way, if uh, yep. Bukele keeps his promises and Bitcoiners keep investing in the country, yeah, I think we'll see exactly what happened in uh, Singapore from mm -hmm. a mm -hmm. fisherman village. The next generations are all coders, engineers, and uh, exactly. very smart people. So I, I agree. I agree. And sense. I, no, no, I, I absolutely agree. And I, and I think um, I wanted to also kind of highlight one thing that I find inspiring inspiring, which is um, that folks like Max Kaiser and Stacey Herbert yes. and uh, even, you know, Corey Clipston and Swan Bitcoin, you know, these yeah. are, these are entities. And, and of course, not to, not the least of which is, you know, the Bitcoin beach folks, if you pay attention to their actions, not so much their words, but their actions, they center the people that were there, you know, to talk, to speak to this notion, this perception of potential neo-colonialism. No, these folks, Galloy money, right? Like these folks are all placing the Salvadoran people at the forefront. Now, you know, we understand that there is excess capital in Western pockets, right? So then folks like Max and Stacy have launched things like El Sonte, Easy Capital, right? Uh, El Sonte Capital, mm -hmm. um, which is deliberately going to invest, in, you know, seed fund and angel, uh, angel invest in Salvadoran companies, which I think is so important, right? So to give the, those folks, those folks are very disconnected from pools of capital, right? If you want to start a business and you're a Salvadoran in El Salvador, you have very little options. You can't borrow money from a bank, nothing. So to bring capital to the country, and they're doing it, by the way, and I can tell you from experience, they're also, they don't want to make this a pool of capital of a bunch of like wealthy West Coast, you know, Americans. They want to take Salvadoran capital and invested in Salvadoran businesses, right? So I find that inspiring because that maintains that kind of balance where uh, you don't creep into a Salvador becoming a society governed and commanded by, you know, wealthy uh, foreigners, but rather it, it brings up the wealth base of the folks in the country. So I'm super inspired by folks who recognize that. Even there's an organization called New Story, for example, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. who is... Um, you know, instead of the American model of like, if you're under-resourced, we'll give you like subsidized rent. New story is giving home ownership options to under-resourced people. Again, this is property, right? This is alluding to property rights and wealth creation. So those things I think to me are really, really important so that we don't creep into a society that is overly controlled or overly commanded by folks who didn't, you know, who, who are there because they're Bitcoiners, but who didn't originally have enormous barriers to success that some of the local, you know, Salvadoran folks do. Yeah. And I also need to echo on something very, very important that you said, investing in Salvadorian people, because for everybody that has not been in El Salvador yet, mm -hmm. El Salvador has some of the most beautiful 
kind, respectful, mm-hmm. helpful people in the planet. Yeah. Living here, yeah. it's very, very different than living in the United States. People yeah. here are truly beautiful. And the young generation, I see that they have some fire in them. They want to learn something. They want to, to do something. They're not just waiting for the government to come mm-hmm. and help them. So mm-hmm. when I talk to young people here, it's always an exciting conversation about, they ask me, okay, what could I do? What should I do? And I try to tell them, hey, the world is going that direction. Maybe you want to learn coding, or maybe you want to mm-hmm. learn uh, cybersecurity, or maybe you want to learn uh, Bitcoin. And people here listen, the, the young generation here listen. Yeah. And also that gives me a lot of hope uh, for the country and makes sense that when you're here, you want to hire Salvadorian. Like, mm-hmm. not because... It could be cheaper, but also because these people, they want to work. They yeah. want to do, yeah. to learn and to grow. So yeah. it's very refreshing about the country. Absolutely. Yeah. I wish it hadn't taken, you know, 40 years uh, to for, yeah. for this, this narrative to begin to change, right? Because what you're reflecting, I think, is something that such a tiny portion of the world's population perceives about El Salvador. The narrative still predominantly is about violence and risk. And now this, you know, bombastic new leader, and it's not about the people and the beauty of the country, the beauty of its people. So, you know, I'm, I'm grateful that folks like you are, are beginning to change that narrative. Thank you. And I'm grateful for all that El Salvador gave back to me. Mm-hmm. as uh, wisdom, as uh, empowerment, you know, coming mm-hmm. from Florida, good luck starting a business if you don't have $2 million in the <laughs> bank account. <laughs> yeah, know? yeah. The air is very different. It gives me hope yeah. also for me and uh, for my family, for my kids. Right. So, Kherson, what is your vision and your hope for El Salvador? What do you think happening? What, what are projects that you're the most excited about? What do you think is going to happen? Wow. Um, I think what what I'm most excited about is being a part of the strengthening of of El Salvador's um, energy grid and energy production. I know that's probably very specific, but as Bitcoiners, hopefully we understand that energy is the kind of base resource, you know, for everything else, for human flourishing, right? In order for a society to flourish, we have to have energy. As a Bitcoin miner, that's part of my viewpoint. That's, That's what I pay attention to. So I'm really excited to be a part of that process. But more societally, I'm excited to see the total transformation of the narrative on El Salvador. You know, coming from a household where, like I said, we it was born out of necessity to come to this country. And then, you know, having been subjected to a lot of ridicule and being made fun of and all these things as a kid were things that were very painful. And I think I somehow have a chip on my shoulder about that, right? So I'm very excited to uh, watch the transformation of the country. Like you've mentioned, you know, places like Singapore, right? Who have in in the span of a, one generation have transformed their country and the people, uh, you know, the livelihoods of their people so meaningfully. And then that message has gotten out to the world, right? Has the, the narrative on the country has completely changed. So I think that's what I'm most excited about is to, to continue to see El Salvador turn into a place where people actually are flocking to and are excited to be uh, uh, be a part of. And that's why I'm here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you're you're uh, you're evidence of uh, that it's already happening. True, exactly that. <laughs> and so, uh, Gerson, we have been together for like over an hour. This was yeah. an amazing conversation. I'm so grateful you gave me this time. And before we close, I want to ask you about adopting Bitcoin, the Lightning yeah. Summit that is coming to El Salvador. Mm-hmm. It will be held in the capital, San Salvador, mm-hmm. and you are going to be a speaker there. So yeah. what are you going to uh, talk about? What's your involvement? Why people should come to adopting Bitcoin? 
Yeah, no, I think first of all, people should sign up for this conference because it's literally, it's, it's one of the only Bitcoin only, if not the only uh, Bitcoin specific uh, conference happening in Bitcoin country. I mean, I think there's no better place to, uh, to connect with folks who are devoted to this ecosystem in a country that is so kind of on the front end of adoption. So um, also, you know, you get to visit this beautiful place you get to spend a couple of days on the beach as well um so i think just on its face it's a it's a it's a great conference to be at i was there last year and it was electric uh for a conference that came into existence in like three months it was incredibly well attended and i think this year is going to be probably twice the amount of folks from last year. I will be talking specifically and creating some education around mining uh, for a Salvadoran audience, for folks who are in and around El Salvador, because a lot of what we talked about still really needs to make its way to, to more folks. So I'll be spending time talking about energy and mining and clarifying, I think, creating some clarity for folks around what effect Bitcoin mining can have on El Salvador. So that'll be the idea there. And I think there might be some other panels that that uh, we might participate in. But um... Perfect. And you know what I tell people that are worried about coming to El Salvador because I still hear the narrative that's outside yep. of here. I tell them, hey, the only concern you should have is that you might not go back to your country because you want to move here and live here. So, <laughs> right, which right. Is actually, I ha- what happened to me? Yeah, I, I have yet to f- honestly, I have yet to find a person, and I know journalists from the UK who have visited. I know tons of people, of course, who have visited in the past year, and I have yet to find a person who's just like, oh no, I'm not going back there, it's, and that's not what I expected. Or everyone comes back. I think positively surprised on so many different aspects. Um, so I think it's a great opportunity for folks who have not been to El Salvador to visit uh, yep. for a week. Definitely. November is going to be a great opportunity because you can explore the country. You can be part of the Lightning Summit, the Adopting Bitcoin Conference, which actually will mm-hmm. focus specifically on Lightning because mm-hmm. before coming here, actually, I would like to have your opinion on that. My only way to understand or to be part of Bitcoin, the Bitcoin network was to buy it or to mm-hmm. mine it yep. and to stack it and to mm-hmm. hodl it, you know. Mm-hmm. But coming yep. here, I realized how important and powerful it is, the Bitcoin sister economy, mm-hmm. and how important it is for its adoption, especially in a developing country or mm-hmm. countries where people don't have yet money to save. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What do you think about the Lightning Network helping the adoption? Whereas Bitcoin without the lightning network just the base layer you know on chain you know ability to transfer value is important right it's 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 valuable but it's impractical i think for a country that has made it legal tender lightning is is absolutely central right to its its overall adoption so um also it allows people having access to the lightning network through a period of of apps that are being developed i think gives people a real tangible sense of what this means to transfer value peer to peer right so for a country with that's starting you know all the way from the beginning many people haven't dealt with digital transfers at all this is mostly a cash economy for for many people having access to lightning Lightning uh, network tools is extremely important because otherwise, I think in the absence of Lightning, um, if you were to just ask folks to participate on this in this on-chain you know network in Salvador, it wouldn't have much utility or much relevance uh, to people's lives. It wouldn't uh, work, in my opinion. Herson, yeah. what would you like to tell our audience? What what message would you like to make sure that our audience receive, and then? Uh, 
uh, where people can find more about you? What's your Twitter handle? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Your work? Yeah. My message to your audience would be uh, simply to take the leap and visit El Salvador. Take the time to visit, whether it's in November for the conference or if you can come at any other time. The waves are best uh, in that around that time, November, December. It's a beautiful country. It's an absolutely beautiful country, as you mentioned, with beautiful people. I would ask people to just be the first in their circle of people to visit El Salvador. Um, you know, get that experience under your belt, because I think you'll be really positively surprised. So I, that would be my advice to, to your audience. And then in terms of uh, where to find me, I'm predominantly on Twitter. So my uh, handle is at Gerson Martinez, so uh, uh, just like my my full name uh, on Twitter, and um, I have a, a small business, and I I am also an investor. Um, I have a company called New Equity Group, which makes early stage investments in Bitcoin centered companies. So that's that's also on Twitter. You, you'll find that in my Twitter handle as well. But uh, other than that. At. Um, I'm happy to help and have conversations or help educate folks uh, that are curious about El Salvador. So feel free to DM me and I'm happy to happy to chat with anyone. I'm going to put all your links in the description box down below. I will also have a code for a 21% discount for the Adopting Bitcoin. So if you have not bought your ticket, make sure to do it as soon as possible because prices Excellent. go up. And also use my referral code. So you help me and also help yourself with a 21% discount. And Gerson, this was amazing. Thank you so much for your time. I learned Thank so you. much from you. Thank you. Uh, great. Thank you for the time. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much, Gerson. Thank you, everybody. I'll see you at the next one. Bye-bye. Bye, Gerson. Bye. Take care. Thank you so much.